Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. James Connolly is on the front lines of the war against meat. He's an artist, he's a chef, he's founded a non-profit and now he's a documentary filmmaker. He created this film called Sacred Cow, which is all about understanding the benefits of cows, obviously, but also he dives into this world of meat and this world of agriculture and food production. And it's a fascinating, fascinating world. And as you'll find, this conversation goes left, right, left, right, and all over the show because. James just has so much knowledge about the food production system and its history. And he's not a hunter. So what you'll find out is that there are some absolute parallels between what he's trying to do and who we are as hunters. All right. It's James Connolly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any relation to Billy Connolly? Uh, no. Do you know who Billy Connolly is? I, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Jennifer Connolly, uh, yes, no relation either. 
Oh, but I think man. that's a good thing. That might, you know, maybe if it doesn't work out for her and her husband, you know. That's right. <laughs> man, I should have brought some brown liquid to to this podcast too. But uh, <laughs> it's early in the week. It's only way Tuesday. past cocktail hour. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, it's just iced tea. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Don't lie. No, it is. Just iced tea. It just looked yeah. like a good whiskey, and. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. um, you want me to go get one? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, we don't need it. Unless you think this conversation is going to run down a road that we both need to have whiskey. Ah, oh, man, I don't know. Like, uh, you know, if, if all of my studies, uh, reels, it really does feel like a great transformation. Uh, and the people who are really functionally changing all of this stuff, it, it starts to get a little nerve wracking. You know? Do you feel anxious when you start? like peeling back these onion layers and like who's going to come off to you? No, no, I don't worry about that. Um, I, you know, I feel like, uh, um, Oh, we're, uh, do you want to record? I could tell you a story to begin. No, we're recording um, already, brother. We're rolling. Okay, cool. So, uh, one of the, one of the storylines we're following for our new, uh, documentary is a, uh, is a lawyer by the name of Steven Donzinger. And um, he's been, for 25 years, he's been going after what was originally Texaco uh, and is now Chevron. And he won one of the largest class action lawsuits, uh, you know, for a bunch of indigenous tribes down in Ecuador. Um, and what, sh what Texaco did was they essentially just went down to this place and just polluted all of their toxic waste as they extracted oil from these uh, very sensitive uh, rainforests. Um, and he won one, I mean, it's up until this point, I think he won about $19 billion. Uh, and since then, uh, they've essentially just gone after his life. He's been under house arrest in New York for over two years now. Um, so we interviewed him. Um, the judge seems to be like almost sort of paid off by Chevron. The lawyer, uh, that was hired as a prosecutor has worked for Chevron before. Uh, so it's like this insane story that we we ended up following, uh, and we don't necessarily know what to do with it. Uh, my team just went down to Ecuador to go film to see like 25 years on what that lecture mm -hmm. looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I look at companies like that, I'm like, yeah, they will go after your life. Yep, <laughs> you know exactly. Yeah, um, but fuck them, man. You know, I mean, I, you just can't you can't live in fear that way. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, James Connolly, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the the listeners? Uh, my name is James Connolly. Uh, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Um, most of uh, uh, most of my training, uh, most of my work over the past couple of years has been uh, centered around food uh, and the war on meat. Uh, so my last documentary that came out was called Sacred Cow, which I partnered with Diana Rogers, who is an organic farmer, raised livestock. Uh, she's a registered dietitian uh, and is now a director of film. Um, and so she wanted to kind of bring balance to a lot of the documentaries that were coming out. They were essentially telling us that, that meat is destroying the planet uh, and really obfuscating the role that, um, oil and gas is, um, has, has done for, uh, like global warming, uh, and environmental destruction, all of this stuff. So, uh, there's been a massive push to get people to kind of move away from meat eating. Um, and most of us don't recognize it because it's actually part of our culture now. Mm. Um, 
and and the general war on on red meat in particular has actually been happening for about 30 or 40 years now um so uh the fever pitch now is as all of the health related aspects of red meat has and saturated fat and all those things are kind of sort of going by the wayside um obfuscates the role of processed food um the the push now is climate change right Hmm. so everybody's got to make sacrifices everybody's got to change their whole lifestyle uh and And meat is one of those sacrifices and yeah the single i I read a lot of vegan blogs the single greatest thing the individual can do to uh you know lower their carbon footprint uh is to to, is to go vegan sounds Um, like sea sourcing it is seaspiracy. <laughs> it's cowspiracy. Uh, it's what the health. Uh, they are fast tracking one right now on zoonotic disease because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if any any issue now, they will tell you to go vegan. Um, and so, you know, it, and really, like I, I was just at a conference the other day, and I was like, you, you know, one of the things as a film producer is like, look who is financing these films. Uh, and one of the guys who is, is this guy named by, by the name of Jim Greenbaum. Um, and so uh, we can go into origin stories afterwards, but if you, but this is an important part aspect of it. He, he, he made about $200 million in, uh, the telecom industry. Okay. Uh, and he works for a, he's an animal activist and his entire, like he is willing to spend this fortune, uh, to just get rid of animal agriculture altogether. Uh, and so you can actually see him on the IMDb for every single one of these vegan films that come out. Wow. Um, and what they're doing is a multi-pronged approach, right? So y- you want to be an elite athlete, game changers. You want, you want to protect your health and, you know, not get cancer, then, uh, then what the health? Uh, cowspiracy, you worried about the planet. Uh, well, cows just, they drink Destroy all the them. water. <laughs> right. They drink all the water on the planet. And they fought all the methane in the world. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so, like, for me, as a documentary filmmaker, um, my, the whole point, if I have any gift at all, is to sort of raise my hand and say, wait a second. Like, let's just bring some balance to this, this <laughs> argument. Um, and so we started about two years ago on Ticket Cow. Uh, and what we want to do is one of the one of the people who are just universally ignored in this whole argument about whether or not we should eat meat is farmers. Like nobody mm-hmm. asks them. Mm-hmm. Nobody asks them what it looks like to go build these monoculture fields of of corn, wheat, and soy. Uh, what that does, uh, you know, to spray all of these pesticides and herbicides and glyphosate uh, in order to build these like low commodity, you know, farming farm foods. That are then, you know, fed to us uh, or fed to uh, fed to livestock. Like our entire world has been terraformed uh, to feed human beings, uh, and it can be nutritious, and you know, can really like you know, uh, build ecosystems and build ecosystem health and do all of you know, all of these different things, or it can just be at war with nature the whole time and mm-hmm. just try to kill everything on mm-hmm. that land and then try to rebuild um, in the same way that like when we talk about antibiotics, it's like, you know, we thought it only killed the bad bacteria, but it turned out it killed everything. Have you noticed in the, in the agricultural sector, obviously you've spent the last two years talking to farmers and ranchers. And so 
in in sort of the circles that I've been working in, mm-hmm. it it almost seems like this idea of a locavore, right? This locavore mm-hmm. in these urban environments is helping the meat movement because there's local small scale regenerative agriculture that people are very interested in and are well aware of the health of the animal, the welfare of the animal. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that as well? Are you seeing this sort of new this it's not a new crop. It's new the burgeoning of this little sector of of meat farming, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we raise cattle in all fifty states. Um, you know, it, I think if you are looking for locality and you want to meet your farmer and talk about what's happening there, uh, whether it's a dairy farmer or you're buying meat from them, uh, I've got a farm that's literally like three miles down the road from me in Connecticut. Um, you know, we see their cattle every single day. Um, and we talk to them about, you know, all of that stuff. Um, there is chicken farming as well. Um, you know, I think there has been a massive push, uh, uh, generally, um, since, so I started a nonprofit in, in my thirties that was mainly focused on school food. And, uh, we worked with like, um, the Obama administration. Uh, we worked mainly, primarily in New York City, and we were going to some of the poorest con- congressional districts in America uh, and asking them if they can overhaul school food. Uh, you know, for these kids, for we'll teach them classes, we'll do gardening programs, we'll do all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. When I first started that, nobody was talking about local. Nobody was talking yeah. about organic. Yep. Nobody was talking about any of the things. People, the consumer now is demanding transparency. Right. Uh, and, um, and, you know, if I read a lot of the blogs that are kind of centered around that, um, that are industry specific blogs that are saying, well, what is transparency? Like how closely can we get to transparency without actually people seeing what, how the food is made, how the sausage right. is made. Right. Um, but I think, you know, it's sort of a war between the consumer. How much can we let them know? Uh, and the more educated you get, the more you really have to like go for real whole foods, mm-hmm. um, you know, because there's just so much shenanigans that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the fight right now is between the consumer and the companies that are making this stuff. Um, you know, cause really what they want is shelf stable products that are hyper palatable, uh, that you can't stop say no to. Uh, you know, like I can't have Oreos in my house, you know, like exactly. a, a sleeve of Oreos is like the appetizer, right? So it, it tricks every evolutionary mechanism you have. It turns off all of your satiation, uh, you know, and it says a serving size is four cookies. It's just no way that you're going to be able to pull yourself away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are specifically designed specialty designed foods made by these companies, um, you know, to, to like essentially addict people so that they, they are constantly consuming this stuff. Um, and I think if you're looking at these companies, bottom lines, what they're trying to do more often than not is they're trying to kind of create a complex by which, um, you as a consumer will continuously buy their products, um, because we just don't produce enough people so that they can make quarterly and annual returns on these foods. And so they have to make something that's going to trick your evolutionary senses so that you consume this stuff on a regular basis. And that's, and that's part of the whole strategy you believe that's moving us away from meat, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, some of it's ideological. 
there's a lot of sort of animal activism. Uh, there are some religious components to it. Um, and, uh, and there is the pursuit of profit um, that is, you know, really kind of try to push. And then there were governmental policies that actually genuinely, I think, actually really thought that red meat was bad for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the war on fat, uh, every single one of those were very misguided policies um, that were built on some really shaky science uh, that never really panned out. Even when they went into places like prisons and uh, mental health institutions where people essentially were sequestered away uh, and you could feed them certain diets and then force them to, to eat those diets. Uh, it, what they found was their entire like theory of saturated fat and all of those things, uh, didn't, didn't end up in, uh, outcomes that they had predicted like coronary heart disease and, uh, you know, overall like less mortality or all of those things. So one of the things that, um, you know, people are with 14 minutes in, 15 minutes into a podcast, and they're like, what the hell has this got to do with hunting, man? This is a hunting-based <laughs> podcast. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I brought, the reason I wanted you on here is because when you look at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service from a survey perspective, the approval ratings of of hunting in the non-hunting public is about 86% when it comes to us hunting for food. Mm. Uh, if you're hunting for trophies, it's like 26%. So the approval rating is very, very high for people to accept the idea that we hunt Mm-mm. because we are acquiring this food. And obviously, one of the things that we use as a rhetoric standpoint or a narrative standpoint for hunting is that we know everything about that piece of meat. Mm. We know how the animal lived. We know how the animal died. We know who processed it. We know how it was processed. We know everything about it. And so to us, that is the key, right? That is, and that's one of the lures for people in, I guess, you know, that want to become hunters. One of the biggest reasons is that, oh, we want to know exactly where our meat's coming from. Yeah. We want to know exactly what that food is. So let me ask you this. Uh, James, are you a hunter? I I am not. Um but only because I don't have the the network of people. So I holy I shit, we're gonna make that. Yeah, we're gonna change I know, that. Totally, it'd be we're great. Change that. Anybody up in Connecticut want to go and take me? Oh out? yeah, we've got friends in Connecticut. Don't yeah. worry. I have. Um. Uh. I mean, I've been. Uh. You know, shooting with a bow for uh three years now. I go okay. out to. Um. I you know do target practice uh all of that stuff i actually really enjoy it i um my original my first job that i ever had was at a butcher shop i worked there for four years okay and i studied with a master butcher when i was living living in england so we would you know eviscerate grouse we would uh you know break down animals uh quarter cows half pigs um so I have no aversion to any of that stuff. And actually during COVID, I was making head cheese and, mm-hmm. and ordering, you know, full uh, animal body parts and, and pig's heads and breaking those down. Um, the only thing that kind of grossed me out was the wax in the ears of the, of the pigs. <laughs> so, but other than that, I have no food aversions at all. Um, and so uh, like for me, it's the next step. It's like mm. butcher shop interviewing farmers, uh, mm. you know, having a homegrown garden, knowing where your food is coming from, like every single aspect of training as a chef. I, I went to French culinary Institute. Um, every single aspect of that, like 
means that I'm leading up to hunting. Like that to me is the apex, the pinnacle. Do you have a perception about what hunting is like as a non-hunter? Um, I have a perception of it from a historical background because I've noticed that, um, you know, uh, any time uh, a colonial power has ever gone into a country where they wanted to take away food sovereignty, uh, they outlawed hunting. Uh, and so I think if you, um, whether it was the, the buffalo that were killed for the Plains Indians, um, or if it's in Namibia telling the San people of the Kalahari that they can no longer hunt because of tourism or climate change or, you know, uh, any number of different reasons. I think we have seen, uh, the Sami people, um, uh, the Sami herders in Norway, uh, every single time they've gone into places, the first thing that they do, if they want to take away food sovereignty is they tell, uh, people that they can't hunt. And, uh, always the reason is different. It's like you, you know, in Australia, in order to civilize people, you have to take them away from their ancestral ways. Mm. And every hunter-gatherer society, every society that's nomadic or pastoralist, uh, the first thing to do is to to shelter them in place, to make sure that they can't move across their ancestral uh, pastoral grounds or can't hunt. Um, and that is a way of sort of civilizing people. And it's it, it's you know um, when uh, I was talking uh, on a podcast uh, about a year ago with a guy from Kazakhstan. Um, who reached out to us because of the film and he wanted to translate it into uh, to his native language. Um, mm -hmm. And he said, you know, so if you look at uh, Stalin's whole, whole program in the Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, to like destroy every single one of the, those people's way of life, uh, he essentially just took all of their farming land away from them. And then in Kazakhstan, all the nomadic pastoral her her herders were uh, were forced to stay in one place. So all of their sheep starved, uh, all of their uh, horses, everything starved, and people starved to death. They lost mm. like a high, one of the highest percentages of population uh, due to essentially taking away their way of life. Uh, and that was to bring people into this new worldview, right? Which mm. we were going to talk about. Sure. The new, new worldview is this ideology that we can now coexist uh, because we're going to take people off of their land. Uh, they're going to be removed from nature. We're going to shuttle them into cities as much as we possibly can. And then we're going to rewild the planet. Um, and right. that to me is very worrying because we do it to an ancestral peoples all the time. We say in, you know, for conservation's effort, we have to remove people who've lived in coexistence with their land uh, for millennia. You know, um, and it's always like, it always in, at the end of the day, there turns out to be mineral rights on the land or, you know, sure. gold or mining or whatever. There's some other thing, right? There's yes. some other thing that's getting them moved off the land. Yeah. So it's a tangential way to kind of answer your question. Um, for me, I think when you initially asked me on, I was like, I would love to talk to the hunting community because I don't know how much pressure regulation is having on you guys to you know, to, to move within that space, the anti-meat crowd or the, you know, the, uh, the conservation crowd, how much pushback you're kind of yeah. getting on that. Yeah. Um, when I got my bow hunting license, uh, the instructor was like, if you want to talk about conservation, you talk to hunters first. Is there people actually on the land? 
Um, and so for me, it was like, let's have this conversation. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. No, it's an interesting conversation, especially in Africa when it comes to, you know, it, it's tough. I think one of the biggest, one of the biggest pushes against us, whenever you put something out about hunting or you put something, especially about Africa, people say, well, the problem are humans, especially from the vegan anti-hunting crowd. The humans are the problem. Get rid of the humans. And it's humans saying that, right? Mm. And it's like, oh, oh we're going to start with you, right? We're going to get rid of you first, and then we'll, we'll figure out everyone else who wants to, to disappear. But it, it's almost this idea of Africa and the people being moved off the land. It's an interesting one because if we were truly thinking about wildlife conservation in the form that it is today and in the burgeoning human and, and in the pop, human population that we have today, it's almost, and you know, you're, you're, you're making my, 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 the seed germinate in the back of my brain. I don't know how you do it without humans interacting on the landscape in such a way to manage that wildlife versus, you know, nomads and pastoralists doing what they're supposed to do. You just don't have the landmass anymore and the value to that landmass needs to be there in some shape or form. Mm -hmm. And that's why hunting, you know, one of the things we say about hunting is it provides value to the animal. Mm -hmm. So a Maasai, for instance, I'll give you an example. In, in the Ngorogoro crater in Kenya, Three lions just took out, or was it three lions, maybe two lions, took out three kids, killed them. There's no hunting around there. Actually, no, it wasn't in Kenya, it was in Tanzania. Mm. There's no hunting operation there. And so those Maasai are going to go, we're taking out these lions. Government, FYI, we're either going to take them out, you move them, or we'll just poison a cow and we'll get rid of a lot more lions. Mm. But in a place that has hunting, the money that comes back into the land, back into that community, the guys go, well, yeah, I'm just going to, I don't, you know, I might have a little bit of conflict or I might have some big conflict with lions. Mm -hmm. if it's, and if it's at the human level, like human loss, life loss level, then that's major, right? Then, then they're going to take care of the problem and the hunters are going to take care of the problem and there's still a value tied to that animal. Yeah. And that value will go back to the family and, and, and hopefully some sort of rep, um, repatriation of of funds to due to the loss of the life of the human it's it's an interesting it's an interesting scenario yeah. in that um yeah you made my wheels turn it's like yeah. you, your, your dogs are going crazy ah oh, sorry about that uh, these are supposed to be noise canceling <laughs> um <laughs> no it's all good yeah there's a there's a wonderful book um that uh that came out and then uh, came, it made it into a documentary that's actually really beautiful. It's called Serengeti Rules. Oh, yes. Um, I've watched it. Yeah. Isn't it what amazing? What did you think about it? I thought it was You like, don't think it was tied to wolves? It was all about like the wolf? Oh, my God. Yeah. Just so yeah, many That's all it was about it, it right? Yeah. It was just, just like Serengeti Africa. And at the end, you're like, hold on. What was this whole thing about? <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, so for him, like this, the, the seminal story of that was, um, you yeah, had, so for those who haven't watched it. Yeah. Um, so it was a, um, it was a, a number of conservation scientists who, uh, uh, there was a, uh, a massive, uh, uh, 
sort of ruminant animal to ruminant animal plague that had come over from India. It's called rinderpest mm-hmm. uh, that had taken off, taken out a huge percentage of the population of wildebeest um, in uh, in and around the Serengeti. But also, it's, it's still like not as prevalent as it was in the seventies, but um, it was it was a real plague that had mm-hmm. kind of happened. Um, and so they inoculated the cows, and the population, uh, the 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 amount of rinderpest actually went down significantly. And so you had all of these conservations who had gotten together, who had watched the wildebeest population get down to like 300,000 uh, in the Serengeti alone. And they knew like within, you know, maybe a year or two, there'd be 600,000. Another couple of years, it'd be 800,000 and 1.2 million. And they were looking at this exponential growth and they were like, well, we're going to have to cull huge amounts of this population. And this one scientist came out and he was like, wait a second, like this is, this is operated for a very long time, uh, independent of human beings. Why can't we just like watch and just see what happens? Uh, and so, you know, for whatever reason, he kind of ruled the day and he did watch an explosion in growth in wildebeest, wildebeest populations. Um, and so the notion back then was all the grass would be eaten. Uh, you know, all the small trees would be, uh, all decimated. Yeah, absolutely decimated. Um, what ended up happening was an explosion in growth, uh, in all the animals in the Serengeti. Um, the, the movement, uh, the wildebeest back to, went back to their native movement. Um, all of the grass started to grow back. Trees and canopy cover started to come back. Uh, baboons and cheetahs and lions and you know you just saw this incredible explosion in biodiversity and then uh, birds would come in and they would pick up seeds and move them to different places and the poop from the the wildebeest would go you know you just Mm -hmm. saw like Mm -hmm. you saw an actual functioning ecosystem Uh, and I think in the way that we think about things nowadays conservation is always about like what we're what we're looking at is is a native landscape that used to have millions upon millions of animals in it, and we're looking at that, and we're looking at a, a a landscape that is deprived of all of those things, and we're viewing that as normative, and because it's normative, we're trying to conserve that. What what we should be doing is like an American Serengeti, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Sure. Uh, you know, an Asian Serengeti. We should be moving back large animals, predators, uh, you know, any number of different, uh, and and really trying to to see what an explosion in growth would actually look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm, it's really hard to conceptualize uh, that um, we have seen in farms in the United States. Um, uh, you'll have tractors go over land that used to support woolly mammoths and they'll, they'll push down on the land and then that will create enough pressure for seeds that haven't been seen in hundreds of years to sprout up. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, seeds that we... Have you made. heard of the American Prairie Reserve? No. Tell me about it. So American Prairie Reserve is a essentially this idea of restoring the prairie, right? The place where... Lewis and Clark really saw these the massive herds of bison and the proliferation of you know the massive herds of elk and whatnots, and so it's being led by uh, the American Prairie Foundation, and what they're trying to do is put three million mm. contiguous acres together. Okay. To essentially, and so it's not without controversy. 
Right. Because obviously one of the biggest things in the West is private landowners and generational people being on the land. And these guys are buying up all this land and, and creating this thing that is the American Prairie Reserve. That's a phenomenal concept. Exactly what you're saying. Bring Buffalo back onto the landscape, let them migrate, let their hooves do the job that they used to do. Mm-hmm. Let the dung go back into the system, nutrients, seeds, you name it. Um, you know, big, extensive um, restoration, conservation type projects that are few and far between on the world today. And yeah. And because of, you know, we have a massive human population that's pressing down on our natural resources. Yeah. Yeah. We, we went down to um, uh, the Chihuahuan Desert um, uh, because we had heard about a bunch of farmers who were down there who were using um, – uh, so uh, bison would essentially move on mass in a pack. I mean, obviously, you're, you're a hunter, so you know. Mm-hmm. how they move, um, and they would be pushed by predators along the way. Uh, and so the way that we raise animals nowadays essentially is that they, they will take over a huge plot of land, uh, and then what they eat on that land is essentially what is ice cream for them, right? So they don't want to eat the weeds. They don't want to eat the bitter greens or anything like that. Um, so if we could possibly mimic the way that they operated, uh, where you force them into these small herds uh, using electric fencing uh, and then move them gradually uh, over a period of 24 hours or 48 hours uh, and you mimic those ancestral patterns, what you find is they'll actually graze everything on that land. Uh, and so nothing can, no one single species will pro- proliferate. Mm. Uh, and so you'll get um, a or lot an invasive of, species may or an invasive take off. species, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went down the Chihuahuan Desert because we had heard about these uh, farmers down in Mexico who were, in essence, pushing back on the desert uh, using these animals, and they were they were building entire soil ecosystems um, in what was essentially marginal land that was fast turning into desert, and. One of one of the like for me one of the starkest reminders of all of that was he was driving past uh, what used to be a fence row, um, and you had this massive canyon that is essentially being um, it had been fo- had formed because uh, it's not how much rain you get it's how much rain you keep on the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I remember hearing at one point that London and Johannesburg in South Africa get the same amount of rain every year uh it's just when johannesburg gets it it's like monsoons coming down right. uh, periodically whereas like london's just wet all the time right um and so if you think like you have these deserts deserts are formed because water cannot be held on that land anymore and when it comes down it essentially just washes and creates these huge gullies yep. so now you have this 60 foot gully that's all the way across uh that's like 40 or 50 feet deep that's been just because the water can't, it's not being held on the land anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they're using cattle, they're using ruminant animals to bring back all of the soil uh, so that all of that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Like yeah, imagine the physical these, characteristics of the soil that allow water to percolate into the, yeah. into the sub, so, subsurface horizons. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an amazing thing to say, you know, like, you start to see uh, like springbok coming back. You start to see eagles and uh, and hawks and 
uh, migratory birds on this land that like none of them could have existed before. Um, and so, you know, for us, it's not like cows have to pay for the sins of humanity, right? We're like, have to take all of these cows and we're like, all right, now fix everything that we broke. <laughs> but they are a tool and a mechanism. Mm. Um, and it's, and we can incentivize farmers to do this in a really good way so that when, uh, when it's done, uh, at the end of it, we eat the meat. Um, right. And so for us, it's like, you know, there's a massive fake meat movement that says we can biomimic everything, all the properties. So why, let me ask this question. Yeah. You've been so <laughs> in it. Why do they call it meat? Uh, so It's fake. It's fake, yeah. right? And they know it's fake. So yeah. why call it the thing that you don't want to eat? Why call it a fake burger or fake meat? Like why? Is it just because they can't come up with a better so, name? Is it, Or yeah. there's something else behind it? Well, they don't want to call it fake meat, you know, they want to call it plant-based. And so when you look at uh, industry and marketing conversations about those things, uh, vegan is, um, I just posted this today, when they asked a bunch of, uh, a bunch of people, what, what do you have the most negative uh, connotation of? Uh, The highest on the list um, uh, was drug addicts and vegans. Right. So vegans are like in your face. Uh, you know, the joke is like, you know, if you walk into a bar, how do you know there's a CrossFitter and a vegan? Because they'll tell you within five seconds, you know, that gotcha. type of thing. Yeah, so yeah. there's a, there's a very sort of high judgmental aspect within the vegan community. And so when they started coming out with like marketing schema and everything like that, they said, well, we can't call this stuff vegan because people won't eat it. So we'll call it plant based. Um, and so the negative reaction to it is fake meat, which is the same thing that happened when they came up with margarine. They used to call it imitation butter, uh, and people didn't want it because it was mm-hmm. called an imitation butter. Um, and so you would essentially have to call anything that was an amalgam of what you would normally have imitation milk or anything like that. And so it has a negative connotation to it. So they're trying to move around that uh, to get people to, and it's not for them. A lot of vegans won't actually touch this stuff because Impossible Burger was tested on 300 rats to see if it was safe. Um, and they push through uh, a, a grass, which is called generally regarded as safe, uh, was a, a designation that like 5,000 ingredients in the U.S. food system are allowed to have. It's like all the weird shit you see on, on the back labels of things. Uh, and so they pushed that through so that they could actually start to market it as, as food. They are trying to literally get the person, not like you and I, because I think we actually have an aversion to it, but the consumer who kind of goes in, who maybe wants to try something new uh, and you know, kind of see what happens. And I think what they want to do is, it's the reason why it sits on the refrigerated shelf space. It doesn't need to be refrigerated. It's not, it's not, it's like bread, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but they want to mimic all of the qualities of meat and then just see whether or not they can actually shame, you know, Americans or, uh, or people in the world to kind of move towards that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the ultimate goal, if you want to ask me is to get it into school food, um, which they've already gotten designation for, uh, to get into retirement homes, institutions, the U S military, um, you know, all of that stuff. Because then, you know, you don't have a choice, right? You have to take it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, let me ask this question. Do you, I know in, the, in our original conversation, 
Where do you think we're going, James? Do you think we're going, <laughs> do you think we're 10 years away from, like, I think you even mentioned in that conversation, if you eat meat, you're like a smoker. Right. That you have to go outside or go somewhere else to eat your meat. Right. You really think that's where we're going? Uh, that's where they want it to go. Um, the, Who's they? Uh, so the UN, um, the UN has been very heavily involved in this. Uh, there are a number of organizations like the World Resources Institute, uh, Eat Lancet, um, the World Economic Forum, um, the World Bank. Uh, a lot of these just small players, small players. <laughs> the guys who are, uh, while all of this is going on, while COVID has essentially shut down humanity, there is a lot of shenanigans that are sort of happening. Uh, that, that, you know, a very small but like very uh, dedicated group of people have been trying to sort of push back against. And we interviewed a lot of them in the film. Um, and, you know, for me, it's like, can I give you like a, a, an overall example? Of course, yeah. So, uh, um, so you, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. You're, you're steeped in, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, a lot of the history. You, are you familiar with the Belgian Congo? Um, no, and, not much. Not much okay. about the Belgian Congo. So uh, the Belgian Congo, uh, it was called the Belgian Congo because primarily because King Leopold essentially owned mm -hmm. one of the, it, he essentially owned yeah. the state. It wasn't even Belgium at that point. Uh, and he kind of came into the, under the gift of charity. Uh, it was it was Christianity, consumerism, and compassion. I think were the three C's, and uh, essentially took over the entire land. Um, and we know now that possibly killed about ten million people. It's one of the largest genocides in even the twentieth century. Um, and one of the currencies with, that was used uh, back then in order to make sure that people would get paid. This was primarily for rubber. Um, you know, rubber for bicycle tires, rubber for the mechanisms of, you know, pretty much mm -hmm. everything in the, in the industrial movement. Um, they, uh, they would chop off hands of the people who didn't reach their quota. And so hands became currency over there. Uh, it, King Leopold's ghost goes very deeply into this. So why am I telling that story? Uh, so secondary to that, um, there was a guy who, uh, um, who had started a company called Unilever. Uh, Lord Leverhulme was his name. He was an Englishman. Uh, and he had started a company that is now one of the largest multinational companies in the world. Uh, and he went into the Belgian Congo because the English didn't really want to have anything to do with him. Um, and he was part of this genocide as well. Uh, and this was for soap. Uh, and then eventually became for palm oil. Uh, and then, you know, so we, we forget about these like narrative histories about these things, but these, these are the companies that are really trying to generate like a, a whole overhaul, complete overhaul of our food system, uh, to move us towards plant-based. So why, let me ask, do you know, let me, that, you know, maybe it's a simple, too simple of a question, but why would uh, those big companies want to move towards plant-based? Um, because it's the, the cheapest commodities you can make with the most amount of profit. Uh, and so if you eat a cereal, it costs about maybe 15 cents to make what's in the box. Uh, and you charge seven or eight dollars for it. Um, there are, it's just a cost benefit analysis. That makes and sense. I think, I think they look at all of that stuff and they say, well, what is, what is the easiest way, the most simple way to make the most amount of profit off of people?
and then I think it's always coming down to this competition that happens between companies. Uh, so Nestle has a history of, of uh, I mean, there's just no, any number of different scandals that are associated with, um, with Nestle. They're one of the biggest players right now. Uh, they are. They have a full open, you know, open door policy to walk into the UN, uh, the UN and talk about food systems. And uh, their biggest sponsors of a lot of the plant based movement. The they have their own fake meat line, uh, Dupont, which is a, you probably I do yeah, agriculture uh, company pesticides. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> like we all have forever chemicals in our bodies because of Dupont. Um, these are all companies that are functionally changing our entire agricultural system and the way that we eat. Um, and I, you know, for me, it's like, like that's the war, right? Like you have to understand what these guys are doing. Um, and they act, they act like there is no, like, uh, they're multinational corporations. They operate outside mm-hmm. of the rules. Uh, if, if there are rules in place that try to break them up, you see a functional change in, you know, it, like they'll just move headquarters, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. to other places. Um, they operate with total impunity. Um, and, you know, I, I just think it's like I have watched the, the whole system move over the past 10 years from one, one thing to another. And what they're doing now is under the guise of efficiency and sustainability, they're just gobbling up the entire food system. There's about 13 companies now that essentially just dominate everything, right? Everything, everything. Yeah, I've seen those diagrams where it's just like everything leads to these like top five. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, we, we, we grew up with the, the notion that monopolies can't exist, right? That we broke up the AT&T monopolies. We broke up, uh, you know, uh, we had that sort of gilded age where people essentially like, um, you know, but we've moved un- under the guise of all of these crises, like uh, under you know September since September 11th, uh, up into uh, 2008, and now with COVID, I think we've functionally seen um, you know a, a real fu- real change in uh, in where our food is coming from, um, and the people who have been screaming about it for a long time are indigenous peoples who have seen their food taken away from them and their food sovereignty taken away. Um, mm-hmm. And they're completely marginalized. You know, mm-hmm. nobody listens to them. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's fascinating, man. It's really fascinating. You know, I think, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the forever, ugh, I'm the forever optimist in that I always try and look at the bright side <laughs> until I get kicked in the balls multiple times. Right. Um, and even then right. I'm like, mm. but. You know, the idea that I brought up before, locavores, I think the idea that people are willing to spend a little bit more money nowadays to get something that they understand more of its biological story, Um, Mm -hmm. know where it comes from, know the person who grew it, know the farmer, that's popping up everywhere. And Mm -hmm. I just, I guess, in the the eternal optimist of me, of myself, it's like, I, I think I can only see that growing. I want to see that grow I want because that only helps us from a hunting community perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I'm as much as I talk about this shit, I am actually an optimist. Like I, I, I think the mythology, it's tough, right? You obviously you dig in and you're like, <laughs> shit, how can I be an optimist once I dig into all this stuff? Everybody says that to me. They're like, 
So like you, you have to be triggered all day long. You're doing all this research, but I'm like, our entire mythology is the, like the, the lone gunman who comes into the town and like clean shit up. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I like feel like the heroic complex is to fight these guys. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, I don't know. I mean, for us, sacred cow was really hard because it, you know, is as much as we tried to create a like a balanced and nuanced message, uh, a lot of the streaming services were like, "This is important, but we're not going to show it." So the overall general arc of everything nowadays is to move people sort of for, towards plant based. Um, and there's just something in me that just says like, "You can't like, w- we have to have a conversation about this. We have to debate these ideas." Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I am optimistic. I think there are a lot of people who are very angry on the left and on the right. Anybody who's feeling polarized, anybody who's like sold the promise of of you know um, what the future can be, bring these techno utopias. We all look at social media now. And we're like, my God, what a fucking scam this shit is! <laughs> you know, influencing elections, like playing around. You know, like we were sold on the internet as like it's going to bring a new era of freedom of information. <laughs> but Nobody I mean, the, the good part about it is like I can talk to a food scientist in Belgium, correct? You know, who is like yeah. doing the hard it's fight. It's so easy. It's so easy to see the negative, right? It's so easy to see the thing that destroys society, but just look at all the good that comes out of it too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we are, I mean, the, the, the film that I'm working on right now is are two like really dedicated, uh, you know, mid twenties, uh, filmmakers who want like a really good fight. Uh, and they're talking about our fear of death. Like we, you know, they went and they they went and harvested um, uh, a buffalo uh, uh, on site on a farm, illegal in most states. Um, were part of that, held its heart in in their hands. Um, they, you know, a lot of it has to do with the denial of death. That we oh can yeah, somehow... we've said that all the time. Death yeah. is we're so sanitized to death. <laughs> That's why I think hunters have such a big problem. Is yeah. that because we're so we're so close to death and we show death? Yeah. That everyone who is sanitized away from it goes, "Oh no, no, what you're doing is wrong." Yeah. Yeah, and you know, the, a lot of a lot of the way that we talk about all of that stuff is really centered around that. Like, I joined the military when when I was 19. My first job was in a butcher shop. So you can't like live in a fantasy when you're essentially breaking down animals and you know, selling the stomach and, and doing all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we bring people back to the land and actually make them understand that in order to grow things, something died for that food. Oh, 1000%. Yeah. That, that, you know, just the idea that death is a part of the cycle of life. Such a simple concept yeah. that people have no idea nowadays yeah. about. Yeah. Um, you know, it, one of the one of the first jobs I ever had was when I was um, uh, I was nineteen, um, and uh, I didn't really. It was before I joined the military. Um, actually, the timeline doesn't really work out. But so uh, a friend was like, he, he decided he was going to get me a job. He was like, "This is what it's going to look like unless you go to college, like <laughs> get a proper degree." Uh, and so I worked at a company that clean the hydraulic pipes uh for waste sanitation in new york city Ooh, now just fun. think about it yeah so it's like <laughs> all the shit like that's what you know it was 
after they removed all the water from it, after they had uh, essentially like sanitized it, after all, of, and it didn't smell all that bad. It wasn't that horrible. Like I could still go out on a date on Friday night and stuff. Sure, like that. sure. That smell for okay, three days. Sure, we believe you. <laughs> right. Um, but like all of this stuff for twenty four, like twenty four hours a day, these trucks were hauling all of the shit out of New York City, and then essentially just putting it onto the land to grow our food again. You know, you can't live in this fantasy world when you're seeing this stuff. Um, and so, like, it's just this entire cycle. We're living mm-hmm. in a cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fantasy is that you can actually remove yourself from that cycle. Um, and one of the biggest vegan memes is, like, a Star Trek episode from The Next Generation where they, like, you know, they order up on the computer, like, a hamburger and french fries. And it's uh, the atomic elements all come together and, you know, like, make right. that food. Right. Um, and, yeah, it sounds fucking awesome, you know? I mean, we're not there. We're not in anywhere near that. Um, but, and it is a fantasy world because the world that we live in now, everything requires um, – you know, like there were experiments done uh, and, and we're seeing this stuff now because of the dwindling salmon population, the health of the forests are going down 100%. because because the trees aren't assimil- getting the nutrients from that, the death yeah. of the salmon that uh, yeah. contributes to it. Yeah, and I they, was uh, actually uh, yeah, a PA, I was a master's student in South Africa mm. to a professor, a guy called Bob Nyman up in the University of Washington. And uh, he was the first guy to trace the, the nitrogen isotope out of salmon and trace it in trees. Really? That were next to the, the – I remember that very distinctly. I was like, man, yeah. that is ridiculously cool. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, just all of that. Like, we're uh, – the fact that we've made distinctions between, um, like, carnivores and herbivores – when you can see, like, I don't know if you follow, um, what is it called? Um, uh, uh, nature is metal. Oh, I was about to say nature is metal, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can just see herbivores. Uh, you can see uh, squirrels just chewing um, skulls, right? Trying to get the calcium out of it. You can see apple trees, uh, root systems go into human graveyards and just start to pull all the calcium out mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Uh, graves and stuff like that. No, nature's beautiful, man. Yeah, it's yeah. part of the cycle. Well, look, um, where can people find Sacred Cow? Uh, sacredcow.info uh, will give you kind of uh, everything you need. You can sign up for it. Um, iTunes, um, you can find it on there. Uh, Amazon. Uh, it's totally worth a watch. Uh, Amazon would, Prime? Uh, Amazon Prime. I think you can find yep. it on there. Um, our new film, uh, there's a death in, deathinthegarden.org. Um, it, I'm telling you, these filmmakers are absolutely amazing. They have a podcast as well. Uh, and they're diving very deeply into denial of death. They're, um, and I love all, it. All the shenanigans that are going on. We're working on that film. Hopefully, it'll be out before <laughs> everything's changed. <laughs> um, you know, and just keep up the conversation. Uh, I am most active on Instagram, so Primate Kitchen is mine. Primate Kitchen, uh, that's right. Yeah. Bunch of good studies, bunch of cool information that you're pushing out there, man. I love it. Every yeah, time I see it, I get like wrapped up in it. Oh my god, my fucking brain. brain. I know your brain was good <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Um, but I also want to hear from the hunting community because I like uh, for us, um, 
that is our window into conservation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, every single time we've, you know, we uh, there is there uh, there are so many players who have a role in uh, what is actually happening to their food system, and they're all activated under a certain like, you know, like what what matters to you. Um, and I think that sort of polarizing of different ideas uh, means that these big corporate interests end up winning because they collude much more than we do. So we need to start talking about these things. And everything, everybody within my community are adjacent to hunters. Uh, they yeah. understand what you guys are doing, um, and you know, and and farmers as well. So th- there's just a whole synchronicity between all of these people. For sure. Um, who are feeding people. Uh, the guy who worked on my house uh, used to do hunting all the way up in the uh, Northeast, up into Canada. And his entire uh, organization was meant to bring um, food that it was hunted into schools that didn't have, uh, that, that were low-income uh, oh, neighborhoods. Man. Venison, bear, all of that stuff. Introduce them to where the food was coming from. Stews and all of those things. So, uh, and it's the same as my organization was doing. So we're all working synergistically. Uh, we just have to start communicating. Exactly. Yeah. But thanks. Well, thanks um, for having me on, man. No, thank you, James. And uh, yeah, hopefully the first of many conversations, my man. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.